0: the opportunity to be your speaker tonight certainly as has been mentioned those that have stood before me have done an awesome job in teaching the truth you'll notice tonight there's been a lot of references to the letters to the seven churches revelation and I'd like to discuss with you this evening about what the letter would look like if the Lord written, wrote, wrote one to the church today if you look in Revelation chapter 1 verse 17 through verse 19 The Bible says, when I saw him I fell at his feet as dead and he laid his right hand upon me saying unto me, fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I am alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things which I have seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. The apostle John was near the same age of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ at this time. He was some 96 years old. It was a sad circumstance that this man of this age was banished from his friends, from his brothers and sisters in Christ that he had labored so long with. When the Lord's Day rolled around on this rocky island, he could not go to church as we do. There was no assembly of the saints in which he could enjoy their fellowship and the worship of God. There was no Lord's table spread where he could commune with the Lord and the elements of his dying love. You know, I suppose that John had never passed a Lord's Day since that great day of Pentecost some 60 years before without breaking bread with his brethren, without meeting them to sound the praise of God. And to engage in holy worship but now he has to forego these pleasures and this opportunity until you know, the bible says that he was still in the spirit upon the lord's day in revelation 1 and verse 10. though he was alone as far as earthly fellowship was concerned he was in full communion with the spirit of god you know we do not realize the blessing that we have as brethren to have numerous occasions to assemble and worship god but you know some days maybe you're on the way home or maybe you've made it home Maybe you begin to think about the lesson, you coming home from worship, you begin to reminisce about your life. Could it be that John was doing this on this day? After all, he had all the time that he could have. He was there alone. You know, I can imagine, if not at this moment, sometime during his stay there, that he would remember very well that morning long ago when he was fishing with his brother James and his father and the hired servants, and the new light that had sprung up in Galilee had come by and said, follow me. It was that day that he gave up everything that he had and followed Jesus. How well he could remember when he and his brother James and Peter were waked up on the mountaintop that night to see the glorious transfiguration of the Son of God, to see Moses and Elijah in glory, and to hear them talking about the coming death of Jesus. And as he sat down to break bread, it was not with him as it is with you and I. The recalling of something that we read about. It was the recalling of something that he had witnessed with his own eyes as he stood at the face at the base of the cross and he saw his Lord and Savior die. How well he could remember the day when he and Peter went up into the temple and while Peter delivered his second sermon, the two were seized by rude soldiers and cast into prison. It was that same day that all the apostles were cast into prison to later be released with 39 lashes on their backs. Peter had now been gone nearly 30 years His old old compadre, whom he had fought many a battle beside, the Apostle Paul had been gone about the same time. It seems that it was the death of Paul, the one who planted all the churches in the western part of the world that caused John to come out west and to make his home here at Ephesus where he might give oversight to the churches that were deprived of Paul's presence. John's own city, the city of Jerusalem, had been in ruins for some 26 years now. His nation was scattered to the wind. You know, all of this reflecting would no doubt have made John pretty sad, unless there comes to him a brighter thought. I cannot linger here much longer. I will soon be with Jesus, and I will soon be with my old companions. But you know, even though all of these things may have been on the mind of John, I am almost certain there is one thing that crossed John's mind often. In John 21, when after fishing with six others all night and catching nothing, the Lord appeared on the shore, and he called to them, He had breakfast fixed for boiled fish and bread, something that these tired and hungry men would enjoy. But when they got through, an interesting conversation happens. When Jesus started away, Peter as always follows him. And Jesus said in John 21 and verse 18, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdest thyself, and walkest whither thou wouldst. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whither thou wouldst not. Peter was a strong, independent man. He was here told what death that he would die in similar fashion as his Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But what happens next is what I think John would remember often. Peter turns and sees John coming and he says, Lord, what shall this man do? What's gonna happen to this man? Here was two very devoted friends who really cared about one another. This was not a bad question, knowing their history. But Jesus gives them an answer that piques the interest of the minds of those that were present that day. In John 21 and verse 22, Jesus says, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Follow thou me. From this verse, there's a lesson to be learned. A lesson that we often overlook. No matter what everybody thinks, no matter what everybody's doing, no matter what everybody's telling you, there's only one thing we need to worry about. And that's following the Lord. That's what we need to worry about. Oh, how that is great admonition in our day and time. But you know, from this remark that Jesus made, the report went out that John was never to die. That he was to live until the second coming of Christ, the final day of the Lord. But you know, if you will notice, John was very careful to write. He wrote it in a way that implies whatever the Lord wills is when he will die. Well, back to our story. Here is John, spending a lonely Lord's Day on this island, perhaps looking out over the sea, waves breaking at his feet. He had to think for the 1,000th time, what did the Lord mean that day? I've tarried for almost another lifetime since the last apostle died. What did he really mean? Perhaps he was dwelling on that question when he hears a voice behind him, which he compares to a trumpet, to the sound of many waters, great waves breaking on the rocky shore, he turns to see and there stood a glorious being unlike anything that he had ever seen before. It was so glorious that he fell like a dead man at his feet. He had seen a many a wondrous sight traveling with Jesus, but this was so overwhelming, he didn't have the strength to stand. And yet while his eyes were open, he saw this being glorious and wondrous as he was. He looked like the Son of God. Though this being was greatly changed, he still looked like his savior. Now this may be a hint to us. First John three and verse two, the Bible says, beloved now are we the sons of God and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. I think this verse as well as others tells us of the bodies, the new bodies that we will have on the resurrection. And I think that they'll be recognized, but this is not our lesson today. John at this glorious being's feet Until this figure lays his right hand on him and he says in Revelation 1 verse 17 and 18. Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead and behold I am alive forevermore, amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. In that moment John knew that he had tarried until the Lord had come again. Well what was he here for? Verse 19. Write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. The Son of God has come down after being in heaven on his great white throne for 60 years to dictate some letters to the seven churches, which we can certainly be edified by heeding as well. But I want you to notice the description, the point that is made in verse 20. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks. The seven stars are the angel of the seven churches. The seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. He explains the seven golden candlesticks to represent the churches. The word angels here means messengers, and I believe that's in reference to the leaders of these churches. But what I want you to get is the value that's placed on the church. These churches are represented by gold. Why gold? Gold represents purity, holiness, righteousness. That is the value that the Lord puts on his church. Let me ask you something. Do we place that kind of value on the Lord's church? Do we truly look at the church that way? He represents the church as a candlestick as well. We get that. The theme of the meeting talks about that. The church is planted in every community to give light for all in the community. And in the eyes and the mind of Christ, one of its congregations on earth is to be about that work. Spreading the light, spreading the gospel, spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, I don't think we realize how bright and beautiful a thing in the eyes of heaven a faithful church is. Because if we did, we'd have a different attitude about it. Well, we're going to discuss a letter that I believe would be written to the church today if the Lord wrote it. You know, when we choose to be spiritual without being being religious, we're asking for trouble. When we reject the form of religion that's found in the Bible we lose sight of what is holy. And oftentimes this causes us to look at worship as being a casual thing, being a common thing, a routine that we just go through every Sunday morning. In the religious world today, and sadly in the church as well, many look at God as a gracious pal who doesn't mind how we dress, doesn't mind how we behave ourselves, doesn't mind how we worship, just as long as we're there. Just as long as we show up. To them, worship is a common thing. It requires no effort whatsoever. So many people think of what they want out of the worship experience that's been talked about tonight and not what is expected from God in worship. And let me tell you, with that mindset, no wonder where we're at in this day and time. We're in trouble. We as a universal church do not realize the reverence of the assembly. We don't understand that. The Hebrew writer would write in Hebrews 12, verse 28 and 29, Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Listen to verse 29. For our God is a consuming fire. Let me tell you something. It would be best that we do not forget that. Our God is a consuming fire. But you know, the question becomes, why has the church in its worship lost so much respect and reverence over the years? Well, it shouldn't be hard to understand and realize that our society has had a major effect on the church. And we need to also know that society and culture is basically the same. Culture is the state, society is the group in that state. Culture changes from year to year, but that does not mean that religion has to change with it. But you know, we must realize that has always been the case. Not that it's scriptural, but that is at a given that man is going to change or relate to culture and expects Christians to conform to the standards of the culture. You ever thought about it before? When you're studying with someone, I'm not talking about someone that's not obeyed the gospel, I'm talking about somebody that's a Christian, and you're studying about moral issues. What oftentimes brought up? Well, that's not the culture. The culture is always brought up, that's a thought process of man. It's an excuse. Listen now, do not let the world around you affect your moral compass. Don't let that happen. You know those pictures that you sometimes see with a bunch of little pictures in it like maybe little dogs and little cats and little people and you, you look at that picture and it tells you to count all you can find and you're looking at them and then all of a sudden it says, now back up and look at the picture again and refocus on what happens. You see a big picture. You see a big picture, sometimes totally different than what you've been looking at. Well, that's the way we should be about Christianity. All of the little things going around in the world, all of the things that distract us, the culture that's changing right before our eyes, we need to focus on the big picture. We need to focus on the heaven and what it's going to take for us to get there. That's what we've got to focus on. And I'll tell you what we can't do. We can't run from it. We can't blame this on ignorance. This is direct opposition of the truth. When our culture leads us to disobey God, we're headed for trouble. We're headed for trouble. Popular culture can believe what it wants, but it cannot, listen, it cannot overrule or edit God's word. It can't happen. When the apostle Paul went from Judea to Corinth, he found a culture quite different from the one he came from. In Judea, the women were real silent. In Corinth, they were noisy and evident. In Judea, men were priests. In Corinth, there was priestesses. In Judea, they followed the book of divine law. In Corinth, they followed what appeased their god, their idol. In Judea, they valued righteousness. What did they value in Corinth? Sexual immorality. What did Paul do? Did he campaign to reinvent the church for these new Christians that he converted here at Corinth? No, he didn't. What did he do? He didn't change his attitude toward the scripture to accommodate culture. That's never happened. But for a matter of fact, he did the opposite. Romans 12, verse 1 and verse 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. He also would tell the Thessalonians, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15, Therefore, brethren, stand fast, and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or by deed. Paul made no suggestions that they were to follow culture and remake the church to fit it. He would write to the Colossians, Colossians 2, verse 60, verse 8. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world and not after Christ. What was Paul doing? Paul urged them to be free from the deception of culture that was surrounding them. We don't need to forget who we are. We don't need to forget whose we are. We don't need to forget where we come from nor where we're going. And if we decide to change the rules in the church for how and when we worship, we need to leave the Lord's name out of it. The church does not belong to us. It belongs to Christ. And listen, if we would just think, we should know the church has always been countercultural. Have you ever thought about that? It loved when others were hateful, it reached out when others didn't see a need, it kept its conscience while others destroyed their conscience, it did not compromise even though the world did compromise. Let me tell you something. The church needs faithful men and women that don't worry about the culture around them. The church needs men and women who are focused on serving the Lord in the capacity they are authorized to do so. You know, for years I have stood in pulpits across the land and preached, put Christ first. That sounds great. Christ first. Family second. Work third. That sounds super tell you something. He doesn't want to be at the top of our list. He doesn't want a shout-out, if you will. He's not a statistics guru. You know what Christ wants? He insists on being the center of our life. Philippians 2, verse 90, verse 11, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, of things in earth, of things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our allegiance is to Christ and to no one else. you know what the difference between being first and being in the center is? When I put Christ first, I can segregate Him from my other priorities. I can kind of just cut Him off from my other priorities. But listen, when Christ is the center of my life, He is integrated into every one of my priorities. It's not Jesus then my family. It's Jesus in my family. It's not Jesus then my work or my job. It's Jesus in my job. John 15 verse 5. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. You notice we as Christians are attached to the vine. We cannot function as Christians separate and apart from the vine. When we do that, we're not of the vine any longer. But who cuts us off from the vine? When we do that, we cut ourselves off from the vine. Don't blame anybody else. Don't blame anybody else if you're cut off from the vine. You've cut yourself off from the vine. So please take heed how you serve the Lord. And by what authority you use to determine your actions as a congregation, as a member of the body of Christ. Understand that how important it is. You know, if it's ever so important to realize as members of the body of Christ, we are subject to the authority of Christ. Daniel 7 and 27, speaking the Most High, says, Whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Now, you may not think so. But we are to serve and obey the Lord. Not some of us, but all of us as members of the body of Christ. Do you know what that implies about the Lord? It implies that He is in absolute control. He overrides and He overrules the affairs of men to accomplish His will. you know what that means? God's ultimate plan will be accomplished with us or without us. Understand that tonight. If you've noticed during the meeting, those that were present this morning, some of the speakers that spoke, Carter uh, talked about this and pointed about this out about reading and studying. A lot of what's been said tonight, if you really caught it tonight and this morning, has been about faith. It's been about growing our faith. I want to tell you something it's about faith. That's where we're at right now, brothers and sisters. It's about faith. Our faith must be growing. We have got to do that, and if there's a problem, you can trace it back to faith. Brother Juan spoke tonight about being faithful unto death. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about as a Christian. Tonight, if you're not prepared for that, you're not ready for the coming of the Lord. You need to make yourself ready. What that consists of, if you're not a member of the body of Christ, is believing in Jesus Christ. Repenting of your sins. Confessing as the Son of God. And being buried in the water of baptism. Have your sins washed away. That's how you come in contact with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. One of the greatest ways to study the Bible is to look at contrast in the Bible. You go to Romans chapter 6, verse 17 and verse 18. He says, you once were the servants of sin, now you're the servants of righteousness. Now, to study, you go find out what made that happen. In the first part of Romans chapter 6, you understand. Baptism is what helps you to overcome and to come in contact with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Maybe you've not done that tonight. We beg of you to do so. Maybe you've done that, but you've turned away from the church. You've done things contrary to God's will. If you've done that, we can pray with you and for you. If you'll come as we stand and sing the